Sean asked me if I wanted to, to speak this morning, um, I looked at the calendar and I thought to myself, well, so I'm right between the resurrection of Christ and Brent Parker. <laughs> Perfect. Great. I'll take that spot in there, I guess. There's no pressure there. I, uh, this message is a message that God gave me uh, last time I went to India uh, in, in early December. I had, every time I go, I know that they are going to, um, they're going to bring all the pastors together and, and, uh, and they're going to ask me to speak. And a lot of times they'll take me from church to church to church. And, and so I, I really try and um, make sure that I'm good and prayed up and that I know what God wants me to, um, to, to speak, particularly to the pastors. That is, uh, you can't possibly be more humbled than to be standing in front of 40 or 50 pastors from rural India who are persecuted every day who are having their churches burned down and their families attacked and who are really living and doing the stuff. That's totally sidebar. But um, so I, when I go and I know I'm going to be speaking to these pastors, boy, it better be from the Lord <laughs> because I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing that I can say to those, to those, uh, to those guys. So um, back in November, we had uh, a pastor who was here from North Platte, and, uh, and he, he gave a really simple message on the, the 23rd Psalm. And uh, it was really, it really stuck with me. Um, it's one of those things where it's, it's so almost cliched. It's like, it seems like everybody's grandmother had somewhere in their house a little sign with some praying hands in the 23rd Psalm. I mean, you've, you've read it a thousand times and it's, and it's all over. Um, and we, we know it so well. But I'm going to read it anyway. This is from the New American Standard. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I, and I, I know this, is, <clears throat> this has been said before, but it, it always sticks out to me this, in this psalm. Again, this is sort of an aside. Um, when it says in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the, the, the word that is translated walk through is the, uh, the Hebrew word halak. And it, it actually is used to describe the flowing of a river river that never stops, that keeps going, that goes around whatever gets in, his, in its path. It finds the path of least resistance. Um, what strikes me so much in, in this psalm is, is just that. It's, it's that he is truly going through the valley of the shadow of death 
rolling like a river and he will come out of the valley of the shadow of death. During this time, this was a time of total strife and danger and discomfort for David. He was on the run from Saul and he was at his lowest point physically in a, in a real sense uh, he had this group of guys that were committed to him, and that was pretty much it. And he had the king of all Israel chasing him to kill him. That's a pretty rough time. You pretty much take what you can get, sleep where you can, when you can, and keep on running. David, who was anointed to be king, who killed Goliath, who spent his time in Saul's court while Saul threw stuff at him, is now on the run from Saul. And in the midst of this, he writes this psalm. On the outside, nothing was right for David. But he was at his height spiritually. At his lowest point physically, he was also at the, at the, the height of his walk spiritually to be this in touch with God, to understand that in times of trouble, God is the one who leads, restores, comforts, anoints, and blesses. And in the midst of this, he writes the psalm that is probably the most famous work on the planet, honestly. Powerful stuff to know that, um, that it doesn't, not only do your circumstances not matter, but the fact is that in those times of need, in those times of distress, in those times of discomfort, that's when God is the most powerful. That's when we reach out to him the most. So, on the way to church that, that, that morning, um, when the, the message was, was on the 23rd Psalm, I was, I was actually in my car and I was, I was singing Creating Me a Clean Heart by Keith Green. And I was just singing through that song and it was rolling through my head. And I, and I got here and the message was about the 23rd Psalm and it struck me so hard then after church, I was like, God, something's, something's churning here with these things. And I, and I realized that the, the, the verse that created me a clean heart comes from Psalm 51. We have opposite bookends of David between the 23rd Psalm and the 51st Psalm. The circumstances in, in his writing, Psalm 51, could not have been more different. At this point, David wasn't on the run. He was the king. He was on top of the world. He had everything he could want. But in the midst of this, he disobeyed God. He put his eyes on Bathsheba when he shouldn't have. He sent his army out to battle when he should have gone with them. And he had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered. In the time of the 23rd Psalm, as David was being chased by Saul, he had a chance, a perfect opportunity to kill Saul, his enemy. 
and he didn't. He cut off the edge of his robe to prove that Saul had been in his hands and he let him go. And by the time he becomes king in the 51st Psalm, he takes an innocent man who is out at battle fighting for him and for Israel and he has him murdered. Whoo! Talk about the, a, a difference between the 23rd and the 51st Psalm. Crazy. And we, we know the story from there. Nathan, the prophet, and David's friend comes into Nathan to, to David to confront him. I, just thinking about that is pretty crazy. When you think about the fact that, I mean, Nathan was David's friend, but let's face it, David was the king. And Nathan was, was, had, had such a burden for the message that he had to give to David that he risked his life to step in there and to talk to David and to confront him in the middle of the courts about what he had done, about the fact that he had had an affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. That's some heady stuff. To be able to step into the courts of the king and say, nope, sorry, you're the guy. You're the one. That's some serious stuff. David knew all of this. He knew everything. He knew the story. He knew what he had done. He had lived with this. He had run from it. There's no way that, that David could look past what he had done. But it took Nathan to point that out to him. It took Nathan to shove his face in it and say, uh, yeah, God knows and I know and you know what's happened. There's a, uh, there's a whole sermon in that too, but I, I won't go in that direction. But David, being a man after God's own heart, breaks down. He doesn't kill Nathan he thanks Nathan, and he repents. The Bible says, and this is sort of an aside, but it's something that has always struck me, that he went into his room for a day, and he shut the doors, and, and he wept in sackcloth and ashes before God and repented. And the Bible says that at the end of that day, he got up, he washed his face, he changed his clothes and he went on about life. And I can only imagine the people around David that didn't recognize what had happened, that, didn't, that knew the story of what he had done but didn't really understand the depth of his repentance saying, what the heck? He's just going on with life like there's nothing because they didn't understand. Again, sorry, that's another sermon too. <laughs> There's a thousand things I could, I could say and, and preach and write in uh, um, between these two psalms. And, and in particular, the 51st psalm struck me so hard with so much about it. Um, the, the 51st psalm is not just a lesson. 
in restoration and repentance. It's a picture of the depth of the revelation that David had. That's what struck me the most in, in really tearing apart um, Psalm 51. And again, I, this, is, this is the condensed version. Um, there's a lot that I could say about this. But it's, it's interesting that we know more about David than any other person in the Bible. Literally, the only thing we don't know about David is David is a toddler. Because we meet David as a little kid. And then as sort of a middle schooler when he kills Goliath. And then as a teenager in the, in the courts of Saul. And then as a, as a young man on the run. And then as a, as a man, uh, as a king. Interesting that David is the one guy that we really know everything. We know his whole life. The ups and the downs and the everything. Significant that, that, that he is such a main character in the Old Testament. Um, there's so much that we can learn. So much we can learn from that. David set up his own tabernacle. Think about that. I mean... It's like the high priest could go once a year into the tabernacle and they would tie a rope and a bell on his leg in case he died under the presence of God so that they could pull him out without having to go in after him. They would just stack up bodies that way. And David took the Ark of the Covenant and he made his own tabernacle. Everybody had to be saying, David, you are going to die, man. You can't just do that. You can't just put the tabernacle in this tent and worship all night and day. You can't do that. That's not the way things work with this. But he did it because he was a man after God's own heart and he understood the, the purpose and the reason and the fact that the only reason we have the tabernacle is because God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people David had a relationship with God like none other. He understood things so far beyond anything that we can imagine. I mean, it's like when you're talking about the Old Testament and the, the, the difference between being the tabernacle as we are in the New Testament and having the tabernacle, <laughs> that is so radically different. And it, it, uh, it strikes me so much in reading through this. This is, um, I sort of uh, uh, divided it uh, into, into sections. So I'll read through uh, verse one through six. This is... In all likelihood, my feeling in this, this, David probably wrote this in that day in his room of repentance. This is probably what he wrote because this was his heart and exactly what he was feeling. He says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. David understands the situation. And David, David had an affair with Bathsheba. God took Bathsheba's child from this affair. And David had Uriah, who was out fighting on his behalf, murdered to cover the whole thing up. And yet, David knows that his sin was against God and God alone. That is a man after God's own heart. In the midst of all this, David understands that his shortcomings are a reflection of God. That, that he is the representative of the Lord. And when he falls, he fails God. First and foremost, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Man, that's powerful stuff. If you go back to verse one, he says, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. That word, blot out, is the Hebrew word macha. And it's used several times in the Old Testament up to the time of David. But in every instance up to this point, it was used more in a negative context. Many times in, throughout the Torah in particular, it is used in the context of completely removing someone from God's kingdom for their sin or to completely wipe out an enemy. Every time it's, it's, a, it's someone, someone saying, God, blot out the Amalekites. Essentially, wipe it to nothing. When, when God and, comes to Moses and says, Moses, these people are all idiots. I'm taking them out. We're starting again. You and me. Just you and me, Moses. That's the word God uses to blot them out. Completely remove them. It was never used in the context of blotting out, removing sin. Never up to this point. Because sin was not blotted out. It was covered up. The sacrifices in the, uh, of the tabernacle, the sacrifices of those enemies, uh, of those uh, animals rather, did not remove sin. They covered sin so that God could be in their midst. When someone sinned, the, the scales of justice would be offset and the blood of an innocent animal would set them right. That's it. The idea 
that David uses that word to blot out sin is revolutionary. It's crazy. The idea that David understood the power of God to blot out sin, the fact that this was coming, two times later, this word is used in the Old Testament. Once in Isaiah and once in Jeremiah, both speaking of the Messiah, blotting out sin. That is powerful stuff. The depth of understanding of David to say, blot out my sin when that was unheard of is, is crazy. Again, the, 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 the revelation that he had of the Messiah, of the forgiveness, of what was coming, of what was real, nobody, nobody up to that point understood that. And maybe no one ever understood that up to the, up to the point of, of Acts, basically. In Pentecost, they understood. Up to that point, it was probably David and Jesus were the only two that walked the earth that understood this whole thing. Crazy. Verse seven through 11. He says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was the, the plant that they, that they used, that they sprinkled upon the sacrifices. They sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on it. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. <laughs> Again, the, that sounds familiar. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. There again is that word. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I read that that night and I, I thought to myself, wait a second, what? Let me, let me read that again. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What in the world does David, a man in the Old Testament, know of the Holy Spirit? That, that word, Holy Spirit, is the Hebrew term ruach that we first find Genesis 1 verse 2 when it says the spirit of God hovered over the, over the waters. David is literally talking about the Holy Spirit. David understands God the Father. He understands the sacrifice of Jesus and he understands the Holy Spirit because he has a relationship with Holy Spirit. Holy smokes. That is amazing. David understood the Trinity of God. I, I, that blows my mind. 
I mean, when, when the Bible talks about a man after God's own heart, yeah. This is the guy who understood God to the depth beyond anyone. Like I said, it was, it was David and Jesus until the day of Pentecost when people went, oh, yeah, that's right. Now I get it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Remember his anointing by Samuel and his time in the field leading up to Goliath. He had to be communing with God. The, the anointing that Samuel, the prophet, gave to David, I, I, I mean, the, at that moment, David was greater than Samuel. And that time alone with the sheep, just him and Holy Spirit and the sheep, what else could have possibly driven this 12-year-old kid to step in front of Goliath and say, no more, I'm taking you down? In Saul's court, David was the only one that could calm him because he had a relationship with God and because Holy Spirit went with him. Saul was a mess and the only thing that would help Saul was David and his harp. The only thing. And that was all Saul knew. All Saul knew was David and his harp. What Saul didn't know is that Holy Spirit walked into the room with David. Because David and Holy Spirit had a relationship. <laughs> Just blows my mind. He danced naked through the streets, totally oblivious because he was so overcome in worship. And when his wife questioned him about it, he said, oh, it's going to get way worse than that, lady. You think that's bad? You haven't seen anything yet. You wait. I'm going to bring the, 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 the tabernacle right here and I'm going to dance before it. in contradiction of the Torah. He knew and obeyed the true meaning of the tabernacle. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Verse 12 through 15. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways <laughs> and sinners will be converted to you. I didn't even write this down, but it just hits me again. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. This guy was the king of Israel. <laughs> that would be quite a class. You would listen up in that class, for sure. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. 
Oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. How powerful. Um, I know that, that, that Sean talked a few weeks ago. I was, I was gone and listened to it about the song about having song and the power of worship and all those things. And we, we talked about it in our men's group again, about, you know, what literally, like what song, what song is it? And I, I have one. I mean, I, I know exactly when I come to that place where I go to. It's the same album. It's been, it's been the same album for 25 years. Um, and, it, and it breaks me every single time. And so I'm careful as to when I listen to it. <laughs> Um, again, David gets it. He's a musician as well. And he understands that the, the, the power of praise, the power of being able to, to, to simply worship God in spirit and in truth, really, truly in spirit and in truth, verse 16 through 19. He says, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Him who has ears to hear. Boy, write that on the wall. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. I, he understands, again, that it's not about superficial sacrifices. There are a number of points, um, uh, and, and Isaiah even talks about it too, where God basically says, I'm sick of your stinking stuff. I'm sick of your sacrifices. Because they don't mean anything anymore. It's, this is not, this is not a, 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 about repentance. This is about going through the motions. And I'm, I'm sick of it. I don't want your doggone sacrifices anymore. Your sins will not be blotted out. Blotted out by anything other than a broken spirit and a broken heart. True repentance comes from nothing other than that, nothing. It seemed odd to me that he says, you do not delight in sacrifices, and then he says, we'll build the walls, and then you will like sacrifices. That seems odd. That seems like a contradiction to me. Except that, and this is a, a little bit of a bunny trail, but it, it's, it's, as soon as I read it, it was apparent to me what he was saying. When, when Israel was captive in Babylon, uh, Zerubbabel comes back to Jerusalem rebuilds the temple. Things are still kind of a mess. God calls Nehemiah to come back to, uh, to Jerusalem to build the walls. And again, that is, and I, I have preached on this, that's, that's really a, a gigantic message in and all of itself, is the building of the walls um, of Jerusalem. He built the walls 
to, to purify the people inside and to keep the people outside out. And that was really the, the, the point of those physical walls. But you have to look at um, Zechariah 2, 1 through 5 is the, the, the real purpose, the real idea of the walls and exactly what, what David is talking about when he says, again, a couple hundred years before this, he says, you don't care about sacrifices, but build the walls, and then you will care about sacrifices. And, and I truly believe this is exactly what, what David was talking about and what he understood and what it was hundreds of years later that the prophet Zechariah talked about. Zechariah was, was one of the prophets with Ezekiel at the time of the rebuilding of the walls. And he says... Uh, in chapter two, he says, then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him. And he said to him, run, speak to the young men saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. Those walls were built because they didn't understand the fire of God. They needed a physical wall to be purified and to keep other people out. But that's not God's wish. The same way that the sacrifices were not God's wish. Because what God really wants is a broken and contrite heart. That's what he really wants. He doesn't really want a physical wall. He doesn't want us to wall ourselves off from the, from the rest of the world. On the contrary, he wants us to be out there. He wants us to be in it because he is the wall. Because the fire of God is the wall around us. That's the wall David is talking about. When David says, you don't care about sacrifices, but bring your fire as the wall around us, and then it's okay. Then you understand. Then the sacrifices are good. Then all of these things that the sacrifices were, were symbolic for, they're all real then. Because now it's all about a heart issue. It's all about the real thing. This is the essence of Psalm 51. And the heart of David a man after God's own heart. There are, I actually, I actually wrote this down. Um, on January 15th at 11.15, Sean said, we don't care about time anymore. We're gonna go as long as we want. And I, I said, I'm taking note of that. Um, but there's something in me that just won't let me keep going. Um, even though I could. 
David was a man who understood God at a depth that no one between Adam, I guess Adam probably understood God as well as, as David. Between there and Pentecost, no one outside of Jesus understood God like David. He was raised up as a champion for God. He became king of all of Israel. He understood God like nobody else. And David, a man after God's own heart, still fell. And he fell hard, big time. His friend Nathan had to come and pull him out of the fire. The guy that wrote the 23rd Psalm, the guy that danced naked before God, the guy who set up the tabernacle, all of those things, even David, even David. When he was at his lowest physically, in a real sense, he was at his highest spiritually. And his cry was for God to lead, restore, comfort, anoint, and bless him. And when he was at his highest physically, in a real sense, in a worldly sense, he was at his lowest spiritually. Let him who has ears hear. Understand that. If you think that all of your troubles are because of circumstances and not because God has something to teach you, you need to think again. He understood that God is faithful, even when we are not. He understood that God does not change even when we do. If you think you will wilt under the pressure or that God doesn't have your back, examine the life of David. If you think you've reached the point where you cannot stumble and fall, consider the life of David. And if you think there is a point where you cannot return to God and be forgiven for whatever you've done, Remember the life of David. Because the psalm remains the same then and now. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, God, for, for your mercy, for your grace, for your love, for your power. God, we thank you that you never, ever let us go. We thank you for hearts that, that are true to you, that want to follow after you, God. I thank you, Lord, that there are hearts in this room that are hearts like David's. Father, continue to stir us. Continue to soften us. Continue to call us and lead us. Lord, I pray that you would lead, restore, comfort, anoint, and bless us. 
God, I thank you for those people around us that are there to keep us accountable, to bring us back to you. Father, help us to have hearts that are soft enough to submit and to hear and to understand. And help us to have spirits that are bold enough to be those people when we need to be. God, we love you. And for some reason, you love us too. And we thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name.